Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? We have a couple new designs up in our merch shop. Merch is one of the best ways you can help keep this show up and running, and I think you're really going to enjoy the new designs, and it's just in time to pick up a perfect gift for yourself or your loved ones around the holidays. But today I have a special treat for you because we are combining the world of botany, art, and history into one incredible book called Darwin and the Art of Botany, Observations on the Curious World of Plants. Joining us to talk about this is one of the co-authors on this book, Dr. James Costa, who, if you've been listening for long enough, might have heard on this podcast in the past. This book celebrates Darwin's interactions with the plant world, and it does so in a beautiful, illustrated way, thanks to the help of the library of Oak Spring Garden Foundation. And what it does is take a deep dive into what Darwin was doing with plants, what he was learning from plants, and how he was testing different ideas following his publication of On the Origin of Species. I don't want to steal any of Dr. Costa's thunder. This is a beautiful book. Please pick up a copy for yourself and All of the links to do that will be in the show notes of this episode. But that's entirely enough out of me. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. James Costa. I hope you enjoy. Right. Dr. James Costa, welcome back to the podcast. As always, it is an honor to have you here. But for those that haven't listened to our previous conversations, how about you start us off with an introduction? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Oh, sure. Sure. Thanks, Matt. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be back on, on the podcast. So I, I greatly appreciate the, the opportunity because it's always a pleasure talking with you. And um, yeah, I, I am, um, I am a, uh, an entomologist and evolutionary biologist um, by, by training. And I'm also something of a, of a uh, self-confessed sort of Darwin and Wallace nerd. <laughs> so uh, increasingly, a good deal of my research and writing is sort of, you know, more along the lines of history of science. Um, I have the, uh, the pleasure of working at uh, Western Carolina University. I'm a professor in the biology department at WCU. And for some maybe 18 years or so, I've also served as the director of Highlands Biological Station, which is part of, of Western Carolina University. So, um, so yeah, I get, I get to wear several hats, the biologist hat, the more um, history scholar hat, and uh, administrator hat, and <laughs> everything in between. <laughs> With the exception of maybe having to do a lot of administration, I mean, you wear some pretty fantastic hats, all incredible organizations to be involved with, and and really mm. the activities that you put out are educational and entertaining, so kudos. You've done it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Wow. It is, it is it is rewarding. I work with great people in, in a beautiful part of the world, and um, it's a mission that we would really fully embrace, you know, both the university, but also the biological station, you know, that, that model of, of deeply immersing students and others in, in the natural world is what it's all about. Indeed. Yes. And, and I love all of the avenues you have found to kind of share your personal love with the natural world, but also to celebrate those that kind of laid the foundation for the rest of us, you know, and the sciences were always building off the, the shoulders of others. You know, very rarely do we make a unique thought or discovery in the sciences, but it's, right. that's what it's all about. And, you know, you, you said at the beginning, you are a self-proclaimed Darwin and Wallace nerd. I think the data also support there's an objective truth to that. Um, so where did this this love for, well, well, we'll stick with Darwin because they should go listen to our Wallace conversation. But uh, where did where did your interest in Darwinian sort of theory and evolution all really begin? And, and how did you find that it kind of dovetailed with the interest in and in who the man was behind the science? Mm, yeah. Well, good, good question. You know, I, I think that that interest, um, it sort of, it springs from um, a twofold source. And one of those is, as an evolutionary biologist, um, of course, there's, I've always had just a, a keen curiosity in, you know, the early history of, of science and, 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 and even and modern disciplines and understanding where ideas uh, come from. Um, so that was part of it, just from my own kind of edification, kind of trying to better understand, you know, the development of evolutionary thinking. But but in doing that, I, I also became, you know, as a, as excited about sharing that, you know, and this is where the 
the educator um, in me kind of comes out. So there's sort of the the, the researcher and practitioner of, of of evolutionary biology, but then there's there's also the educator. And so, um, of course, these are ideas that I get very very excited about, <laughs> and I really really want. Um, I would like my students to to understand them. And so, you know, years and years ago, I um, I became interested in offering. Uh, courses, you know, seminars. Um, it, there are various forms of these courses, um, and I still teach them today. But, but they're an opportunity for biology students and also others, you know, students from allied disciplines and even you know literature and and philosophy interested in 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 maybe Darwin specifically and evolution in general, giving them an opportunity to read, say, on the origin of species and really delve in and understand where Darwin was coming from and, and how we view his arguments in the modern view, which, you know, not everything that he argued in 1859 kind of holds <laughs> holds up to the, the test of time. And so there's interesting places where we might view him as having barked up the wrong tree, other areas where we think, wow, he really hit the nail on the head, you know, the fascinating and, you know, considering for the time, you know, having a uh, very little understanding of, um, of heredity, and the nature of variation and all of those sorts of things. Um, it, it is really fascinating to see just how much, you know, Darwin and his close colleagues like Wallace were able to, to figure things out. So um, that's really where this came from, was, was a desire to share my own excitement with the development of these ideas with my students today. Sure, sure. And as an educator, you can probably very much empathize with the idea of, of having to hit certain checkboxes through the administration process of what you need to get done in the amount of time you're allowed to interact with students. And I think it is, it's, it's sort of a shame because so few actually sit down and go beyond on the origin of species and really dive into what other works were being done, what thoughts were beyond mm. just the introduction of evolution and, and change over time. But I, I really appreciate that you, you've, you've seemed to really taken that on and you show a side that I think bolsters what they're doing. Like you said, they barked up a wrong tree every now and then. We all do in the sciences. It's mm -hmm. kind of the part of doing True. sciences being wrong, hopefully less wrong over time, but really showing <laughs> just how much thought and how much, you know, in the case of Darwin, especially uh, the passion there was for the subject matter. Yeah, it's a fascinating aspect of Darwin's work. It, it, he does sort of exemplify science as a process. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, um, you know, you have to you you have to formulate hypotheses and test them, and sometimes they don't pan out, and that's part of the process. You know, and and I think you're right. Beyond the origin, um, you know, Darwin's working method of you know taking certain ideas and then following them out experimentally, um, kind of really thinking deeply about them, throwing ideas out there. Um, I, I find that fascinating. And so there is a lot of the kind of post-origin aspects of Darwin's life that um, I always felt is, was well worth um, sharing with, with an audience, maybe especially because, um, you know, for me, he more than exemplifies simply doing science <laughs> in, a, in a personal way, but also he exemplifies doing science in a collaborative kind of way, mm. you know, it, it kind of underscores the idea that that science really is fundamentally a collaborative process. You know, we're all kind of, you know, we're not just sort of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, but we're we're, we're interacting with, with with colleagues and students, and it's a really it's a dynamic kind of give and take, and you really see that with Darwin's own collaborations. His uh, his own family, his kids were his re research assistants, <laughs> helping out in the in the garden with the experiments. His many correspondents, his close friends, and other family members. And so, for me, it sort of exemplifies science is really done by a community. Yeah, know? yeah. And reading your previous works on the subject matter, you you do see that it comes through, and and just the sheer amount of people he was writing to and corresponding with. Many went on to do incredible things themselves, and and have names that are recognizable mm -hmm. in their own right in their own fields, but. Yeah, this idea that it, it was for him, especially later on in his life, a very it was a family endeavor almost to try to understand the natural world. And and like you said, it's that post origin where I'm sure as those ideas were crystallizing in his mind, and he was thinking about them getting towards the, you know, the angst of publishing. It just must have been a fascinating release to then go now to test it all. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in so doing kind of um, co-opting, you know, um, 
you know, his whole household practically, you know, it's really, <laughs> you know, it's really pretty interesting. You know, it, it becomes very much a family affair, you know, from the kitchen garden to, you know, the ornamental flower gardens to the woodlands and the meadows and, and the study. And, you know, just, you know, I, I kind of, I like to um, imagine his home downhouse as a hmm. kind of field station and, you know, and, and it's Darwin and his family and friends that are all the, the the researchers and the students in the field station. And at any one time, you know, there's a dozen or more, you know, investigations <laughs> going on all over the place. And, um, it, that, and I imagine for some uh, in the household, that could have been exasperating at times. <laughs> and, and, then, and then for others, it was just simply an exciting, it's the way of life, you right. know, it's, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> I always wonder, and I, I wonder if this this thought crosses your mind or how often I should say is, is in those moments thinking about what they were doing at hand, was there ever, wow, in a hundred years or so, people are really going to look back and say, we were doing some foundational stuff or was it just... Hey, no one's ever messed with this pea before. Let's see what happens when we do this with a piece of thread. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, who knew that peas would be so informative? You know? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I can imagine with with Darwin with with many of his little, um, you know, he you know he liked to. Uh, you may remember this. He he used to sort of joke that he loved fools' experiments. He always <laughs> you know kind of half jokingly referred to his you know, little homespun experiments as fool's experiments. And, um, you know, of course, they're, they're always to an interesting point of kind of like figuring out some aspect of maybe um, adaptation or variations on structural diversity or, you know, illustrating some evolutionary or maybe even ecological point. Mm. And um, I, wonder, I wonder to what extent he might have reflected that some of these simple fool's experiments, you know, would, um, would be seen as, as foundational today. in in some cases, you know, sure. like, like for example, his, um, his weed garden and lawn plot experiments, you know, just little patches, like three by four foot, little patches of fenced off area where, you know, one patch would be just the weeds would, would be let to kind of grow and develop. Another would be, you know, the sort of moan and then unmown, you know, areas mm. and, and the idea is to kind of look and see, you know, um, you know, the various species that colonize and 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 demographically how they, you know, they they germinate and 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 how long do they do they survive and those sorts of things and and um, those observations make it into um, on the origin of species and you can really see them as uh, in a way sort of really getting at principles that today we recognize like we we have names for them we would call them you know, a competitive exclusion principle, for example, mm. or we think about niche partitioning. And that that's really where it started. You know, right. it's just literally these little patches in Darwin's, you know, back lawn, you know. <laughs> so I don't I don't know if he would have ever imagined, you know, that those little experiments really could have been be, be viewed, you know, a century, you know, two centuries later as as uh, as foundational in 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 ecology and evolution. Sure. Yeah. It's it's fun to think about again that the human side of the element of that and, and how many people have the foresight or yeah foresight it would be not hindsight uh, to to really think about the impact that it could have let alone be able to that it could if have. we had that predictive power boy we'd all be kicking butt in our fields but <laughs> you <laughs> <Yes>. know <laughs> you, you mentioned the lawn you mentioned the garden and you know one of the things that I, I think gets sort of passed over because people tend towards vertebrate biology and evolution is you hear about the finches or the large flightless birds mm. that he was comparing across continents. Darwin had an absolute fascination with plants. And in many of these foundational examples you were just talking about, they involve plants or musings on plants at the very least. Uh, plants really helped shape not only his development of evolutionary theory, but where he took it from that point on. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And, and, you know, as important as the zoological world may have uh, been, certainly for, for Darwin, um, absolutely, you know, um, botany was, was central. In fact, you know, a case could be made when you consider, you know, his vast output, you know, the, the range of, of books and papers that he, that he published exploring these evolutionary themes, um, the lion's share, you know, is botanical, you mm. know, in fact. And, you know, he um, and he would sort of again, it's his sense of humor. He would sort of, uh, you know, joke that, um, oh, how he wishes he was a botanist, you know, <laughs> and, uh, 
and he's like really pretty pretty remarkably accomplished you know as right. a, as a body. and um and here and there he kind of um you know betrays this 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 deep interest when, when he first becomes uh, fascinated by um you know sundews or orchids you know he would comment to his um his friends and colleagues like joseph hooker the, the botanist at q um would comment that um well, their adaptation just just beats and you know anything you see in, in animals, you know, it's <laughs> at least as interesting and 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 even maybe even more so, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. An argument we're still trying to make till this day <laughs> in so many classes right. and interactions. <laughs> but you know, a lot of that is is obviously on the origin is his most famous publication. It's one you can go to most bookstores today, thrift stores even, and find a copy of at least in some decent enough condition to read, or they can purchase an annotated version of it from yourself. But (laughs) (laughs) when you think of trying to consolidate what was going on in the world, it's hard to come by sort of a compendium or or a real tome of, of this is a summary of what he was doing until Mm. now. And that's why we've connected today because along with your colleague, Bobby Angel, did mm-hmm. I say that correctly? So I don't want to butcher you names. Did, yeah. Okay, good. Along with your colleague, you have published an incredible book that is both fascinating in the reading aspect, but beautifully illustrated, thanks to our friends at mm-hmm. Oak Spring Garden Foundation for opening up their library, called Darwin and the Art of Botany, Observations on the Curious World of Plants. And what I love about this is it's, it's a concise and digestible but entertaining read that really summarizes everything we were just hinting at, all of his tinkering, all of his musings, all of his thoughts, and and really puts at the center the specific plants or groups of plants that were catching his interest throughout a period of time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This this was such a fun uh, collaboration, um, and Bobby, you know, Bobby had this idea uh, to to produce a book like this, and initially thinking about a compendium that treated um, only Darwin's climbing plants. Oh. And then later, you know, kind of talking with um, with very supportive editors, you know, at, at Timber Press, the idea of broadening that to really consider Darwin's, you know, botanical work more, more broadly um, um, developed. And that, and that was a great idea, I think, because there really is so much in it. And it turns it into a compendium that really does kind of... Um, uh, highlight the, the the fascinating range of Darwin's botanical interests. You know, the climbing plants by themselves are fascinating, but then to sort of juxtapose that with his fascination with orchids, with carnivorous plants, you know, with movement of all kinds besides simply twiners and things. Mm. Um, you know, all all of these areas. Um, you know, for Darwin, it's it was all of a piece anyway. It was all to sort of help us better understand the evolutionary process. And so this was a really wonderful uh, collaboration to try to, you know, bring together, as you mentioned, a sort of compendium form of both um, Darwin's own writings on a selection of about 45 of his favorite plants mm-hmm. um, with uh, some explanatory, you know, information about what he's getting at here, what his interest is, and then illustrating these, these, um, these plants with, with the beautiful artwork from the Oak Spring Garden Foundation in Upperville, Virginia. So it really just all all stars aligned here in a, in a wonderful way. <laughs> Truly. I mean, when I first caught wind of this collaboration, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. But you know, what, what came out the other end makes me even happier. And it's fascinating to hear that the original approach was going to be the vining plants because boy, going mm. through this manuscript, you're like, this man had a thing for vines. And and really, you know, <laughs> among all the others, it's it's fascinating just to see what what captured his interests throughout the time, let alone what he was doing with them. And so why do you think vines, first and foremost, kind of really hit just a high percentage of what was going on with his tinkerings? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that as he started thinking about ways to sort of extend and illustrate some of these evolutionary ideas that he had encapsulated in On the Origin of Species, um, one line of research for him that was, you know, he found fascinating was to think about the ways in which even seemingly unrelated, distantly related, you know, um, mm-hmm. very, very different groups of organisms really ultimately have a kind of common ancestry, you know, mm. and, and I'm thinking of plants and animals, sure. you know, and, and so I noticed that, that early on Darwin becomes fascinated by plants with animal-like qualities. 
and um, and certainly the um, the climbers were were the first group that he really started kind of thinking about in in that regard, um, especially um, you know so not so much the sort of root climbers like English ivy, but but the twiners, you mm. know, and where shoots or, or the the tendril bearers. He's fascinated by the touch sensitivity. He's fascinated by the searching movements. You know, he has sort of um, discovered this this uh, concept that that he dubbed circumnutation, where the growing shoots and tendrils kind of very slowly sweep a kind of in a kind of circle. Um, you know, the idea as it grows is that eventually it will bump up against a support, and then its behavior, so to speak, quote unquote, will change, and it will begin to then um, grow um, up and twine in that in that direction, and um, you know. It happens very, very slowly, you know, as you know, mm. but with Darwin is sort of imagining that, imagine if you could speed that up, you know, time-lapse photography, you know, <laughs> it, it is very animal-like. Yeah. They're very animal-like in the way that they move, the way that they um, have a sort of touch sensitivity. They can clearly detect stimuli, mm. um, the directionality of light. And, the, and, and if you, you know, touch one side of a tendril versus another side of a tendril, they can respond to that. So I think that that was um, just utterly captivating for Darwin. You know, he's thinking about, you know, wow, th this is a group of plants that really has animal-like qualities. And, you know, as different as plants and animals um, seem to be, there are these commonalities to them. And, and then, of course, that's an idea that he that he pursues again in a different line with carnivorous plants. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you're reading this again, the humanizing side of this is you get to see sort of behind the scenes of how he was thinking about it, how he was approaching working with these organisms that, you know, he didn't have access to this state of the art time-lapse photography that we do today. So how do you go about studying this? And from sort of the scientific investigation side of it, it is so easy to fall into this sort of mindset of, well, we're doing it better than we ever have now. What mm -hmm. use is that from back then? But when you read about his experiments with light and dark and touch and using threads and just seeing how tendrils versus mm -hmm. twining and, and the, the stem and the adaptations of the leaves for movement, uh, in this case, extremely thorough and the power of investigation and just observation is something to truly be admired even today. Yeah. And, you know, it's amazing, too, to think about how he's doing these experiments, these little studies and learning an awful lot in the process without the benefit of very sophisticated equipment. <laughs> right. And it's something that I that I, I, I've always really loved about, you know, Darwin's penchant for these so-called fool's experiments that, you know, he's he sort of brainstorms. He has an idea to do some experiment, maybe in this case, making observations to sort of trace or document the movement of tendrils or whatever it is. And he simply uses what's at hand, you know, <laughs> he's using, you know, thread or tape or wire or this or that. And, and, you know, just kind of creatively thinking about, you know, pulling together what, what's in his desk drawer, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 and coming up with a kind of apparatus. And in that way, you know, I think that that illustrates science at its most essential, mm. you know, which is really, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's it's about learning how to see. It's about learning how to ask questions. And and ideally, then we learn how to ask a question that is testable, right? Sure. Ideally. Um, and so, you know, but it all starts out at the very basic level. You can, you know, ask questions and test those questions in ways that don't always require, you know, super sophisticated, expensive, you know, um, apparatus, you know, it, it can literally start as it did with Darwin, you know, just, just in one's, you know, in, in one's home, in the classroom or in the backyard, you know, yeah. just kind of, you know, doing these little experiments. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate too, that his recognition that not all vines are made the same. They're not all related per se, uh, in, in a close kinship sort of sense. They don't necessarily have even familial relationships, you know, he's mm. working with Fabaceae and then Convolvulaceae. It's it's really neat to see how far, you know, he laments, if only I was a botanist, but boy, he knew a lot more. <laughs> you know, it's like the whole like <laughs> modesty sort of thing of, of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. The man knew so much, but yet didn't yeah. take a lot of credit. But again, through those correspondence with those at Q and other scientists working at the time, really was able to test this across a wide variety of plants uh, and that was the mm. other thing that really gets sold here is just 
how many different species he was working with. Yeah, and the oftentimes for a given subject, like a climber, for example, it would be really important for him to look at um, a diversity of groups, you know, across um, across subfamilies, across genera, and, and the idea being that you could view them as maybe variations on a theme, or if the if the adaptation of interest in this case might be um, climbing and grasping, and then and then climbing onto something. Um, this can be accomplished in different ways. And is is it the um, is it a, a modified branch or is it a modified uh, petiole? Is it a modified flower peduncle? You know, mm. there there are um, ancestrally different structures that can be modified to be the sensitive organ that's responding to touch and then helping that plant um, climb, which is pretty cool. And then you know the adaptations for either responding um, positively or negatively to light, for example, or maybe gravity, you know, again, kind of variations on a theme. So I, I think for Darwin, yeah, he recognized the importance of looking broadly, phyletically, as we would say today, right, among very different groups to see, you know, the variations on a theme, how these different lineages maybe have uh, exemplified these adaptations in, in different but related ways. Yeah. And just the sheer amount of patience, going back to the idea of not having a ton of technology available to him at the time, especially the patience you need to do experiments on plants and especially doing them in such a temperate zone of the world where seasonality really starts to come into play. And the other thing that really fascinated me is how far he went into this idea of outcrossing. So is it... Mm fitness is fitness incurred from outcrossing with unrelated individuals or is it maintained when you just sprinkle some closely related or your own pollen on that and you know it's one thing to work with orchids which he was a huge proponent of working with orchids mm. where that's a little bit more directed one pollinia one attempt done right. but like foxglove if anyone's ever tried to grow foxglove that's a lot of seeds to have to deal with <laughs> and doing it multi-seasonal is it's just incredible to think of how advanced his thinking was even in the context mm. of that era yeah it, it exemplifies his um you know the the kind of uh working method and and the necessity of kind of pivoting when necessary so for example darwin would do as much as he could you know as you mentioned temperate zone right and and you know rather northerly at that <laughs> yeah so um growing season is short you know um, he's, he does what he can uh, in his in his garden, and then you know then he realizes well you know if if, if he's going to be expanding and he, he needs to study tropical species, which he's fortunately able to borrow, mm. um, you know, courtesy of his good friend Joseph Hooker, who happens to be director of at that time was probably the world's greatest you know most diverse sure. <laughs> biggest collection yeah. of international plants in any one place. Um, but many of these were tropical. And so obviously, you know, you're not going to survive um, being planted outdoors. So he's bumming space, greenhouse space from a neighbor for a while. <laughs> and then he finally realizes, you know, I really need my own greenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he, you know, build, builds a greenhouse, you know, and, mm -hmm. and he's uh, then he has, you know, temperature control and he can have different rooms dedicated to different groups of plants. And, um, you know, that really... Um, made it possible for him to greatly expand, I think, the range of his uh, sure. of his studies. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about, okay, I go on the internet every time I get a new plant. How do I grow this? Let's see what others have written. <laughs> you know, there probably was some resource for that, but just the husbandry side of being able to <clears throat> keep these plants alive long enough to do these experiments, record yeah. data, multi-years worth of data <clears throat> just to talk about, um, and let alone write and, and have... Uh, enough nuance to it to inspire mm. ideas and draw conclusions and yeah must have been a lot of trial and error and um and of course advice you know from the specialist it's a, it's an interesting thing you know ab about about darwin is you know and this is true of his zoological interest too but he recognized you know um it's the it's the boots on the ground. It's the people that are actually working with these plants in the garden. It, it's or it's the pigeon fanciers that are doing the actual breeding of the pigeon. Whatever it is, they have they're this amazing wealth of knowledge, a very practical experience. And he really rated that very very highly. You know, mm. he would, you know, anyone in any walk of life, if they were you know sort of expert in 
in in some you know some plant some aspect of horticulture or or whatever it might be um he had great respect for that and would of course you know pump them for information and i think he got a lot of good advice for mm. um growing many of these plants that he um that he that he did grow that's great and you know thinking of of having that community of people to draw from is you know, I didn't realize how important domestication or at least the process of domestication really was in informing some of this and how valuable of a resource that truly was in the big picture sense for anyone really diving into the world of inheritance and evolution and change over time. Because, you know, it's it's different, but at the same time, it is the most tangible way humanity has incurred its own changes on other organisms through time. And, and plants, well, there's plenty of domestication examples in that world. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's huge. Um, and the case has been made that um, that Darwin's um, interest in, in domestication, you know, it's not a coincidence that when he first, early, early on, soon after becoming convinced of this idea that species can change, but he doesn't know how, and he's sort of thinking about that, he starts investigating um, really the world of, of, of the plant and animal breeders of, of mm. domestication. And somehow, you know, sort of recognizing that um, their their expertise, their experience, you know, that can shed light on this process of the nature of variation, of inheritance, of um, of how breeds are developed and, and modified, and became and, and actually saw that as a kind of analog, you know, um, just as humans, you know, modify these these breeds, you know. Um, by uh, you know so selective breeding and such, um, you know there's a version of that happening in nature. And in fact, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I do believe that natural selection as a phrase, you know, um, the the word selection in there was already used by the plant mm. and animal breeders as um, you know illustrative of how they make new breeds, how they improve breeds. It's all a question of very judicious selection, and. Um, I think it's not a coincidence that then Darwin, when he figures out how this may happen in a natural context, you know, without human, you know, direction, right. um, that he uses that same word selection, but he, he appends to it the word natural. <laughs> Fascinating to think just what was available and what inspires for any given moment. But, you know, in, in, in thinking about your breadth of knowledge on this subject and, and working with a colleague like Bobby on trying to I guess narrow it down would be the best way to put it in terms of what mm. could go into a book like this. How much did you have to digest of Darwin's writings and, and how did you work with Bobby to truly start to pick out those plants beyond the climbers that were going to be included mm. in this book? I mean, this is, it's thorough, but it can't be all that was available to you. <laughs> yeah. There's so much that was available and, and really a lot of that curation was Bobby. Like we, we, we knew of course we, we wanted to, um, illustrate um, several different areas of botanical research by by Darwin. You know, the orchids, the carnivorous plants, the climbers, and other forms of movement, etc. Um, and uh, of course, you know, we're spoiled for choice. There's like a, you know the <laughs> million you know uh, po possibilities. Um, but Bobby sort of curated, and I think that we wanted to see. First of all, Darwin is very excited about certain plants. You sure. know, there are some that he duly reports on and he did study but we're we're fascinated by those cases where this may be the first that he got excited about or the first plant where where he discovered some new principle or really nicely illustrated something so we wanted to have that you know bobby did the kind of curation of helping narrow it down to these maybe 45 plants falling into these different groups and then partly the um the final decision is is um is informed a bit by what is available through the amazing collection of of bunny melon mm. at the Oak Spring Garden Foundation because we you know we wanted to um, to illustrate each of these plants with with really historically um, interesting and very beautiful artwork and you know coming from the uh, you know 16th 17th 8th you know or 18th 19th centuries and um, in some cases maybe it came down to you know, well, these two plants might equally well serve to illustrate this principle with Darwin, mm. but this one we have this amazing painting, you know, <laughs> um, you know, from, you know, the early, you know, um, uh, 1900s or something, but this one we don't, 
Right. You know, and so let's go with the one where we have a fabulous, you know, um, painting that we can draw upon. Yeah. And that's what I think really strengthens this book. And, and you know, again, you can tell the story a bunch of different ways, but to illustrate it with with the historical aspect of botanical art, which exists today, but used to be so much more. It used to be much more celebrated. And, it, you know, I think we should go back to celebrating it a bit more today uh, for mm. what it is and for what it can teach us. And And that's what I think really makes this book stand out above the writing is is just looking back in time at just some of the most stunning imagery and having been in that library at Oak Spring and been able to look mm. at a small selection, it must have been an absolute treat to just be involved in this project and and be able to peruse that those selections. Yeah. That is a slice of botanical heaven right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, putting it really mildly. <laughs> oh man. And, you know, it's, you're right, you know, there's sort of in the heyday of this kind of, um, of, of, of artistry and illustration, um, pre-photography, I suppose, yeah. you know, when this is really where it was at. And, um, of course, there still is a place for it. And there is still, of course, some beautiful, you know, fabulous, um, you know, botanical art being produced. But I think you're, you're right. There was a time when, um, when, you know, it was the only way to go if you're going to be illustrating mm -hmm. these things, both, both technically, but then also um, maybe to illustrate the, the sheer beauty of some of these plants. You know, there's a parallel with maybe the ornithological world where, where, the, where the great folio volumes of, of beautifully illustrated birds by Gould or Audubon, you know, were, would be produced. Um, because, you know, there, there's so much to be said, you know, that picture that's worth a thousand words, mm. you know, uh, and, and the artistry is just astonishing, you know. Um, and, yeah, so it's 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 true. You know, the um, the, the diversity of of plants, of, of paintings that were available to us um, was, is just astounding in in that library and the challenge really was to sort of narrow that down and and bobby really had her work cut out for her she went um more than once you know of course and uh looking at multiple candidates for each of the kinds of plants we wanted to illustrate photographing them and sharing them with me and we would kind of pour over um some of them but she she ultimately you know had this this idea um and you know it's interesting I, if I'm not mistaken, her her idea at the very beginning was, I guess in a way, it was sort of born of a lament that, you know, here Darwin has done the, you know, all this incredible work, right? And he's got several, you know, he's got six like botanical volumes. Mm. And yet the illustrations are, um, they, they are um, really just purely, you know, sort of functional. They're just, you know, they're, they're very simple drawings, woodcuts, you know, they're, you know, some of them are, you know, they're pretty intricate and pretty cool, you sure, know, sure. but a lot of them are just very basic, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I think she was lamenting that, you know, wow, like, you know, Parthenocissus is such a cool plant and why illustrate it with that, you know, that, <laughs> that, that rather crude and simple little line drawing, wouldn't it be wonderful to, illustrate Darwin's elegant work and beautiful work with a beautiful painting right. you know, of, of a plant. And, and I think that um, that disappointment with <laughs> maybe in a sense with Darwin's sure. own illustrations is what kind of gave her this inspiration for wanting to um, do better by the plants. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. And yeah, I think it, it celebrates his efforts and it, it really elevates them, I guess, is where I'm trying to go with that. And, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. it's the Internet today. I get more clicks on things when it's a really nice photograph. And that's a shame, but it's the way humans have always worked. But, you know, I've always mm. take, kind of taken comfort in Darwin's drawings because you see all of these scientists that are also incredible artists. I didn't get both skills. <laughs> so it is kind of comforting <laughs> when you see one. You're like, I, OK, that's that's my level. This is humanizing. But, um, yeah, I, I do hear that, though. <laughs> Because and it gets the job done. <laughs> exactly. They're they're informative, but by no means no one's writing home about them. Um, <laughs> but here's a book now that has the writing and the pictures to go with it, the beautiful illustrations. So you get to go back and learn about a bunch of different artists. You have names and, and citations attached to them to expand the library of knowledge of anyone interested in that side of it. But it's a book that both functions as something you could lay down in bed, it, read at night, or put on your tabletop and have someone go, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. And all of those are nice little hooks 
to then dive into this world. And from that world, all of the questions and some of the answers that were given, it's just that whole fractal nature of the web of science is like, Mm. it's one spark lights another spark and then it's compounding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I really appreciate that. And your, and your enthusiasm for our, our approach. Um, And, you know, and I, of course I appreciate that way back when we asked you to, you know, take a look at this and, and, (laughs) and and give us some critical feedback. You were very helpful. So I, I I do appreciate that you, you saw the potential from the, from the beginning. And, um, and I, I think you're right, you know, here too, we're, I guess we're, we're, we're aiming to illustrate or shed light on, on Darwin Yes, but also Darwin in his cultural context, uh, maybe kind of stepping back and looking more broadly at botanical investigations. So in the the short introductions to the chapters, sometimes we might explore um, Linnaeus's interest in a certain plant Mm. or Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who also was something of a, a, a of a gardener and a and a botanist and very you know famously the the author of the best selling Loves of the Plants <laughs> and his uh, what is it Philosophica Botanica you know yeah an interesting um, attempt at read on my end I have not powered through but <laughs> I appreciate what he was trying to do <laughs> yeah it, it's sort of sometimes there are these fun stories you know behind the names or behind the discovery or the biology and and um, you know, there's an interaction there where it says something about a time and a place. And so we, we like to um, kind of spotlight those things where they occur, as well as Darwin's own work. And in that way, maybe better understand Darwin as part of a, a grand endeavor, mm. you know, that, that others too had been had been working on and thinking about. Of course, he was able to take this to a whole new um, level, really, yeah, yeah. with his evolutionary perspective. Right. And the emphasis truly on natural history throughout is is so obvious. You know, it's it was more obvious to them in that era than it was to us today, even. And that's, a, I think, another shame is just as kind of botanical art and, and really science art in general has kind of fallen a little bit to the wayside. So, too, has spending time in natural history. And, mm. you know, in reading this book, you sit down and anyone I know, my audience included, listening, will pick this up and learn something new about the plant itself, let alone Darwin and, you know, like you said, what was going on at that time. And to think of, you know, again, the time period, how how long ago this was being done and say, oh, I never knew that. That's new to me, you know? And when you think yeah. about the lack of natural history in the sciences nowadays, mm. this there's very well many examples in here, I'm sure, where that could be the only time someone's actually written it down in any formal context. And that, to me, is, is pretty True. powerful in a book like this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that makes me think, too, you know, your your point is is very well taken. And, and, and you know, isn't it true, too, that there are some aspects of the natural world that we take for granted now? Mm. Um, and an approach like this, where you're looking at how Darwin and others of his generation and even a generation or two before are thinking about about things, um, how it's new. It's a, it's yeah. a new way of looking at things. And to, to give one example, you know, we take for granted the role of insects in pollination, mm. right? You know, this is just, you know, extremely well understood and established and a whole, you know, discipline of, of, of <laughs> right. investigation, right? But, um, but actually Darwin himself, you know, he, um, he saw that, but really many of his contemporaries didn't quite get that. It wasn't widely understood or appreciated the role that insects play in pollination. And Darwin went out of his way to champion the work of a German naturalist named Sprengel, um, Conrad Sprengel, who wrote this, um, this, this beautiful book arguing for, you know, the importance of insects in pollination, something that we take for granted today. But most of his contemporaries, you know, Sprengel's contemporaries, probably fa- found that laughable, you know? <laughs> so, an approach like this, this book, I, I hope helps to, you know, kind of shine a, a light on, again, as part of that science as a process, figuring stuff out and 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 things that we take for granted today, um, they were, it was not always so, mm-hmm. and they had to be kind of figured out. And, and when it comes to the plant world, there was so much that was misunderstood uh, for so long, for millennia, really, yeah. until sort of the certain, you know, you get your eye in and you learn to ask the right questions and kind of look at things in the right way. And and um, and there were various people doing that, like Sprengel, 
And then Darwin with his kind of evolutionary eye, you know, he, he really kind of um, lifted the veil on um, so many aspects of, of plant biology in, in a fascinating way. Yeah, I mean, I even think of the example of looking at different types of flowers on the same plant, right? You know, it's it's there's there's a time period, and I could be drastically oversimplifying because history isn't my subject, but for so long, flowers were viewed as this beautiful thing that if we were interacting with them, it was to improve their beauty for our enjoyment. But mm. here you have the violets that have their showy flowers that everyone knows and loves, and then their clystogamous flowers that never open. Right. And the fact that someone made the observations, took the time to even think about it. it, someone had to get there first, right? And that's what's amazing is others could have, you know, for millennia observed it, but it's that, again, this this celebration of the scientific side of things, of writing it down, of of formally recording Mm -hmm. it and musing on it, that to me, it's just, it's, like you said, a part of the time period, it's a different way of looking at the world and really celebrating that Mm -hmm. next step, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And that's such a good example, you know, because you can imagine that a careful observer, you know, for maybe for centuries had noticed these little kind of strange bud-like flowers that never seem to open. And, and you know, you can't make heads or tails of it. It's just sort of, you know, it is what it is and sort of ignored. Mm-hmm. And it takes kind of a, 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 a new eye, you know, someone to kind of think about that in a different context to maybe realize what may be going on with them. Or like another good example could be heterostyly, right. you know, the, the idea of, of having these pin and thrum, you know, um, flower morphs in the, of the, in the same species, um, you know, it had been observed, but what exactly it meant, right. was, you know, it was a mystery, you know, and then, you know, Darwin kind of c- comes along and, and he, um, he sort of independently, has this epiphany about the about heterostyly, um, you know, the, this polymorphism, and he's fascinated by it, and 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 then it's a good case in point of how he first starts thinking about it in one way that maybe it's an adaptation. You know, uh, we're seeing the evolution of um, separate sexes in action. You know, where you have a solely male and solely female flowers eventually, um, to then sort of um, you know following out experiments and demonstrating that, no, he's barking up the wrong tree. That's not it after <laughs> all. And then backtracking and then coming back to first principles and eventually kind of hitting the nail pretty much on the head, you know, um, to what we would uh, accept today, which is, you know, looking at heterostyly as a, as an adaptation that's promoting outcrossing right. uh, among these, uh, among these individuals. Um, but, you know, again, to your point, I can just imagine Plenty of people, you know, for maybe millennia have observed that difference, but uncomprehendingly. Right. 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 Or just taking it for face value. Right. It is. Yeah. For for face value. Yeah. 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 I wonder, you know, in in moments of reading that, especially like the heterostyly is give me a foundation of knowledge today and set me forth without knowing what heterostyly was or having any idea of the literature. Would I look at that other than something that's, huh, that's neat, and then move on, you know? <laughs> like, could you, would I have ever converged on something like that's important, you mm-hmm. know? And it, I don't know, <laughs> but it is yeah, yeah. those kinds of thoughts that I love, the, the humanization side of doing science, uh, especially for someone that is, I mean, a, a household name, whether it's an in-depth knowledge or not of the subject matter he put out, uh, you know. it's impressive to humanize someone that's that kind of figure in this world. Yeah. And that, and that example, I think it nicely illustrates the point you had also made previously about, um, about the patience, Mm. you know, to be that, that careful observer, careful experimenter, because that in particular, I think, you know, figuring out the nature of heterostyly and and the really complicated cases of tristyly, right. To do like every possible pairwise cross, and many, many of them, yeah. and then get those seeds and then grow them out. And, you know, um, as Darwin, I think, put it in one letter, he wrote, it might have been to Hooker, where he said he was half mad with life room, you know? <laughs> uh, and he, you know, and then, you know, hundreds and hundreds of crosses, and he still had hundreds and hundreds to go. And he's like, ah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, many, many grad students listening can empathize with that <laughs> feeling, I'm sure. But again, we all start somewhere and to have correspondence is, is so important in the process of doing any work, but especially the scientific process. Um, it's mm. 
it's again this humanization process of of truly a a, a very powerful name in the sciences and having those examples beautifully illustrated is just so perfect and and it's timely for a lot of different people i'm sure uh no matter where they are in their career yeah i i do love that idea of putting a human face on the icon you know and really the idea of of uh of you know maybe pulling back the curtain a bit you know this iconic you know giant you know in our field you know helping us understand the natural world but really ultimately um you know he is um He's he's a guy, right? He's yeah. a dad. He's a husband. He's he's a friend. You know, he's a he's just a curious guy. Yeah. And to to understand him as a human being, I find that fascinating because you know to kind of come back to that um, point that I I made very early on, you know, sci science of course is a human endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. And and a community endeavor. And um, so to kind of help help people understand not just the you know, that creativity with, with figuring things out in so many interesting ways with these very different groups of, of plants that Darwin investigated, but also to kind of understand uh, the person, you know, um, doing this, the curiosity, the engagement with family, with friends, with correspondents all around the world. Um, you know, it really, um, really is, is, is so fascinating and instructive on so many levels. Yeah, yeah. And I love that about books like this, because no matter what, you're going to pick it up, whether you're interested in one side or the other or both, something new is going to come out of this for you. Something engaging is going to happen. You're going to have a new topic to discuss at the dinner table at the very least. But I'm curious, from your perspective of, of someone that has spent many, many, many hours exploring the world of Darwin and his writings and putting together Darwin and the Art of Botany, did you come away with a new appreciation or something you didn't know before? I mean... Did you go in, cracks and knuckles, I got this, I know exactly where everything is and what I'm going to say uh, and how we're going to put this together? Or did you come away having, a, I did not know that, or I've learned something today? No, I, I, I did learn new things. Um, and, and you know, I, I feel like I had a pretty good handle on Darwin, the person, and his immediate circle and, and his, his curiosity, his mode of investigation, his circle of, of, of correspondence and family and friends. But um, I wanted to also, at where relevant, right, try to understand these plants and their biology in a in a somewhat broader context. And sometimes my researches, uh, I'm interested in figuring out what Darwin did with with this or that plant. But in the process, I realized that oh, well, someone else had looked at something similar, or mm. Linnaeus commented on this and it was and was quite interested in this, or Erasmus Darwin, you know. Um, celebrated this phenomenon in 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 poetry, you know, and and hmm. those are things I did not know, um, and I so I really enjoyed kind of not just you know helping uh, better understand Darwin's take on these plans, but then at times stepping back and looking at um, at his contemporaries or some of his forebears that were that were also interested in, in these plants as well. And so I, I, I did learn um, quite a lot because a fair number of these, I do in, uh, explore, you know, these other connections with these plants. Sometimes they, they, they loom large in, um, in legend and lore and mythology, mm. um, sometimes in, 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 in uh, naturalist circles. Sometimes there's interesting stories of discovery and, um, you know, cases like, for example, when Schomburg, you know, maybe finds or, or others that, you know, uh, multiple morphs of a certain orchid that were have been described as completely different species, genera even, hmm. turn out to be morphs of the very same plant, you know, <laughs> right. you, know um, you know, fascinating, you know, um, tidbits like that. I just, you know, and Wallace, you know, Wallace uh, has a, a great love of plants and engages with Darwin, maybe uh, Angricum, the uh, the comet orchid mm. is the is the example where uh, this 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 orchid and its extremely long nectary right becomes sort of um this this uh you know kind of case study in an extreme coevolution because you know the 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 orchid that has such a long um nectary has got to have a moth with a with a, a a similarly very very long proboscis in order to be able to pollinate it, you know, and then that sets the stage for making this prediction that this moth must exist, you know, and um, it's stories like that that I I think really more than just understanding the biology of the plant 
it says something about the people. It says something about the spirit of discovery and exploration. And I, I love that. And I try to bring it out whenever I can in these different plants. It's beautiful. And yeah, I think the the sort of network of botanists and biologists and people that he was able to draw from, I mean, many of which, like you said, are big names in and of themselves, but the curiosity, the interest in the plants and the fact that it is for so much being foundational uh, stuff that a lot of people have moved on from since then. And it's a really nice way to revisit some very fundamentals because like you said, it's just as your colleague Bobby and co-author on this book wanted to do justice for the plants. And I think that's really what comes out of it at the other end is this appreciation for these organisms as species, maybe mm. as genera, but it's that celebration of, yeah, we may be caught up in the latest theory, the latest data, the latest, uh, you know, what you name it in the science world. Let's get back to the basics and remember why we got into this oftentimes in the first place. Yeah. The beauty, the, the wonder, you know, and in that respect, I really think that this approach works very nicely. You've got, you know, I, I call it an arts and sciences collaboration. Yeah. You know, you, you've got this fascinating science and also history of science and science as a, a as a process, but then illustrated with that, you know, wonderful artwork from Oak Spring Garden Foundation. Um, and in addition, you know, Peter Crane, the director at, at Oak Spring, um, very, very graciously wrote, you know, just the, the preface. The prologue. Yeah, it's a preface um, or prologue, yeah. or whatever you want to and, call it. <laughs> um, and then Tony Willis, the head librarian, you know, wrote a really, you know, wonderful essay, kind of an overview of, uh, of Bunny Mellon's uh, botanical and horticultural interests yeah. and her, her library, the, the books, the artwork. So it's also a way to really showcase, um, you know, there is the science, but then there's also the, the, the beautiful art. And just, you know, I think you can't help us sort of marvel at the at the beauty of some of these. And the, the artists is quite a diversity of artists represented, yeah. you know, from um, from over several centuries right. and, <laughs> and, and their different styles and approaches um, is also really instructive, I, I yeah. think, you know, um, they all have their their incredible beauty. In, in rather different and complementary ways. It's true, yeah. And I mean, I think you captured it very strongly, this idea that not only were Darwin's efforts collaborative, but this book in and of itself was the result of collaborations between organizations and people and, and spans centuries of effort in showcasing plants for what they are. So with that in mind, if we've gotten people excited about Darwin and the Art of Botany and they would like to pick up a copy themselves, where do you recommend they go to do that? Well, th this um, can be obtained at any very good bookstore near yes. you. <laughs> um, but also, of course, Timber Press is, is our publisher. And Timber Press is a renowned publisher of, of botanical and gardening and horticultural volumes. Um, you know, an am amazing catalog. Uh, it can be obtained that way. Of course, the, the, the usual big online booksellers, such as Amazon, my own um, humble little website, jamestcosta.com, um, uh, spotlights the book. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, are, there are several ways that, that one might go about obtaining a, a copy of this, of this book. Excellent. Well, Dr. Costa, and to your colleagues, I mean this as well, thank you so much for putting this book together, for bringing it to the world to celebrate the man, the history, the science, the plants, and doing it in such a just digestible and, and beautiful way. It's a fascinating read. I hope everyone runs out and buys a copy, even if you know they're not necessarily the ones that they're buying it for. Get it for your friends, the botanical lovers in your life, or really just anyone that's fascinated with biology and science and history and art. I mean, there's something in here for everyone. So thank you for putting it together. And of course, thank you for taking time to talk with us about it. Well, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of the opportunity. Um, I think Bobby would agree with me. It was, um, for both of us, a, a labor of love. Um, so it was really a pleasure to, 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 to work on this volume and, and, and bring this out to the, uh, you know, sort of as Darwin said, exalt plants you know, yes. <laughs> um, out there. Um, and as we, as we, um, we wrote in our dedication, um, again, it's an arts and sciences collaboration. And so uh, we, we dedicated this book to botanists throughout the world who continue to study plants and the artists who continue to draw them. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. And here's to them. Three cheers. But again, thank you for your time and thank you for everything that you're doing. Keep up the amazing work and let us know the next time you write about some plants. <laughs> Many thanks, Matt. I absolutely will. You'll be the first to know. <laughs> of course. I will always be appreciative of that. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers.
All right. What a phenomenal conversation. I always enjoy talking with Dr. Costa. He is such a thoughtful person, such a curious person, and really celebrates everything about Darwin, botany, and the scientific process in general. Once again, that book is Darwin and the Art of Botany, Observations on the Curious World of Plants. If you want to pick up a copy for yourself or a loved one, just check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. I have a direct link where you can grab a copy for yourself. While you're over there, consider all of the different ways you can help keep this show up and running. As I mentioned at the beginning, we have new merch designs in our store, and merch is a great way to help support this show. You can also pick up a copy of my book or become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. But that is entirely enough out of me for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.